Hey there, I'm Amadil Yakbar, and this is See Something, Say Something. This week, we're going to be talking about fake news and the Islamophobia industry. And it leads a lot of people here stateside to think that, you know, immigration has just absolutely destroyed that continent and ruined those countries, and it's all because of those Muslims. So fake news is something that we've all learned to deal with over the past couple of years. And it particularly affects the Muslim communities in Europe and North America because there's basically a cottage industry of stories, hoaxes, fake news around our community. And it's often very difficult to think about how to address this. So thankfully, we have a lot of people here whose job it is to think about these things really hard and help us make sense of it. Joining me today is Ishmael Darrow. He's a news reporter on the debunking team at BuzzFeed News. Welcome, Ishmael. Hey, thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Nabiha Sayed. She's VP Legal here at BuzzFeed and also like a total free speech nerd and educates us and defends our rights. And we love her. I love you. <laughs> thanks for having me. So Ishmael has brought a fake news quiz for me and Nabiha, which is something that we do on our sister podcast, The News, in a segment called Fake News You Can Use. Ishmael, tell us how it works. Sure. So I've got a, uh, a couple of one-line descriptions of a story or a headline, and uh, you guys have to tell me if it's fake news or is that real news? Uh-oh. Well, I have a 50% chance, <laughs> just like SAT tests. Okay, number one. Cars are melting in Arizona due to the extreme heat wave. Oh, God. No. I have to say, that sounds like something your out-of-touch grandma yeah, and like, uncle Yeah, like, are these cars made of chocolate? Like, what are these cars? Metal doesn't <laughs> melt at 100 degrees. I'm going to say no. It's fake. Okay. Well, that story is fake. Uh, there was a real photo of cars that appeared to be melting, um... But the damage was actually caused by a fire at a construction site, not from the heat. But, of course, uh, one of the things that happens with fake news is that photos that may or may not be real can get repackaged. And there was a U.K. publication that presented these photos and just said, oh, these cars are melting because of the sun. So uh, it's not even half true, but it, it is at least rooted in something that happened, which is there was a fire and parts of these cars did look melted, kind of like melting ice cream. And did that have, like, virality? Was that actually successful in getting people to post it? Like, who was posting that? I think it's one of those things that because it seems relatively harmless, it does get shared quite easily because people are not necessarily weighing whether or not it has political implications or social mm -hmm. implications. It's just, oh, these cars look like they're melting. And it did, uh, it did make it pretty far. I feel left out that I didn't see it. <laughs> True or false, Facebook flagged the Declaration of Independence as hate speech. Oh, this is true. That's, that, it is? It's, this is true. That just sounds like such bait for everyone I went to high school with. <laughs> um, I'm still going to just say fake news because I don't want it to be real. That is real. Oh, God. It sounds like a perfect storm of like... Like, oh, totally. Perfectly clickable and shareable. Right. For... It's like a thing that you want to be true, so you just cast truthiness on it, but it is in fact true. So, well, there's sort of a logical reason why this one might have been flagged. Uh, what happened is that a small newspaper in East Texas was posting portions of the Declaration of Independence on their Facebook page. As one does. But the algorithms that rule our lives 
took out uh, or noticed the phrase Indian savages, which, you know, that's not uh, something we say anymore, but it is, in fact, in the Declaration of Independence. Learned and those words today. were flagged and uh, withheld because of the Facebook algorithm. So it wasn't necessarily an act of censorship uh, or not human-directed uh, censorship, but that did, in fact, happen. We live in the weirdest reality. <laughs> okay, next one. Rhino poachers were thwarted this week by a pride of lions who ate the poachers. Oh, I really want this one to be true. But again, like what you just said, it sounds like the type of thing that I want to be true. So I would share it. But I think false. I this, I'm seeing I, I didn't do the spoiler share. That one is true. I saw that story. And I guess. Well, may, you know what? Maybe I didn't verify enough. Though. That's a weird thing. Like I saw it. Posted by what I thought were reputable sites, and I guess I didn't actually click through. So the question is, <laughs> well, which is psychologically so interesting, right? Because one of the reasons people believe things is if they've, if it's familiar, if right. they've seen it. Right. I think it's true though, because I saw enough people that I respect posting it. Well, you should have believed this one, Ahmed, because I wrote it, and it is in fact true. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see. So what what happened is that a wildlife reserve in South Africa found some human remains next to their pride of lions. And when they tranquilized the lions, they could safely inspect it. They found three pairs of boots and three (gasps) pairs of gloves and other equipment that rhino poachers typically carry with them, including, you know, wire cutters and an axe for which, you know, that's that's what you use to do the deed to get their uh, valuable horns. So this, in fact, happened. I spoke to the owner of the wildlife reserve and he said, uh, thank God for my lions. (laughs) What, yeah. you, you know, they I, ate the whole poacher? Uh, or multiple poachers. Uh, the police are still doing forensics to figure out how many, but it seems very clear that at least one poacher met his demise. It kind of seems like justice. I don't know. D- but did you see that I did actually trust you? I was like, people I respect posted this. <laughs> so you should take it as a compliment. Hey everyone, it's your host Ahmed, and uh, there were some issues with our studio move. We have a brand new studio set up, and that's cool, but fortunately there were some issues with the mic. I blame Studio Ghosts, so I'm going to sound a little distant this week, and we'll fix it up for you next week. Sorry about that. So, Ishmael, for people who haven't read your most recent story, can you talk a little bit about what you found regarding fake news and anti-Muslim propaganda making its way from Europe to the U.S.? Sure. So this is something that I've observed over time, and I was interested to dig in a little deeper. It's uh, it's something that you see a lot if you follow uh, sort of right-wing news outlets in the U.S. or, you know, trolls on Twitter and, uh, unfortunately, also uh, President Donald Trump, uh, is that they'll often talk about Europe as a continent in chaos. And and the reason that it's in chaos is because of all these Muslims who refuse to integrate or immigrant newcomers from North uh, Africa and the Middle East. And they are changing the culture. They refuse to integrate. And I was curious to sort of trace that back. And I found that often what starts as a local story in Sweden or a tabloid story in Germany will then get picked up by these key sort of sources that translate that stuff into English and then help spread it around the English-speaking internet, including here in North America. And it leads a lot of people here stateside to think that, 
you know, immigration has just absolutely destroyed that continent and ruined those countries. And it's all because of those Muslims. And that seems to be the main avenue through which a lot of these publishers are finding their audience, which is, you know, sharing horror stories about supposed, you know, criminals, uh, immigrants in certain uh, neighborhoods, creating no-go zones. So it's uh, a lot of scare stories. Yeah, I mean, and there, I mean, it's the political rhetoric. We've seen it not just in Donald Trump, but also like local elections. You know, there's been, uh, I think, still the idea of there being no go zones in certain parts mm-hmm. of Europe is very popular in amongst like certain popu- uh, populations in the United States. And it sounds like it's come from Europe. That is, uh, from what I've seen, that's sort of where it originated. It started with a claim in Sweden that there were certain high crime areas that police had marked as just needing extra attention. But often, you know, those neighborhoods also tend to be where lots of newcomers uh, reside. And over time, it sort of built up into this notion that these were no-go zones, specifically meaning that you had to be Muslim in order to be able to enter safely, and that police and paramedics were often prevented from going in and doing their their jobs. Uh, This is something that I've debunked in the past. Uh, Swedish police say that's just not true. You know, there's certainly areas, like in any country, where there's uh, certain socioeconomic issues and maybe higher crime rates. But the, the idea that you cannot enter or that you have to be of a certain faith or ethnicity or what have you, uh, that just simply isn't true. And over time, that has also spread from Sweden. And now people are increasingly claiming that Germany has no-go zones, that all these other uh, European countries have so-called no-go zones. And it is just not true. Why do you think that this particular story has had such purchase and appeal in different places? Because there's there's many stripes and flavors of conspiracy theories, but this one really seems sticky. I have seen people on Facebook that otherwise appear not to be lizard people, like they're normal people I know, <laughs> share this particular story, leaving behind the other types of conspiracy theories that are out there. And I'd be curious, like in your work, do you have a sense of why? Like why this one? Mm-hmm. This is no-go zones? Yeah. My sense is that, uh, at least in the U.S., uh, people can easily believe this because they're just not in Europe. But I think what specifically sets these no-go zone theories apart is that it plays into a larger sense of an invading force of uh, Muslims or immigrants from the Middle East and North Africa coming into European countries, changing the culture, taking over. And it's, in a way, not too dis- dissimilar from... U.S. conspiracy theories about Sharia law taking mm-hmm. over, or um, there's all these small uh, towns in the U.S. That, that are trying to pass anti-Sharia legislation because they are convinced that there's a kind of conquest happening. And, of course, that's not the case. But I think the reason people believe it about Europe is because there's enough distance, and we are all familiar with the uh, migration uh, issues of the last couple of years, that uh, it becomes more believable to some people. What do you think are the major, like, vectors making this story, like, like the idea of a no-go zone or, like, even just, like, any of these general stories about um, Muslim migration being such a threat to Europe so popular? Is it is it the social media aspect? Is it the news uh, aspect? Or is it, like, the politicians? Or is it, like, a perfect storm of all three? I think there's, like you said, there's a perfect storm. Uh, the specific angle that I look at often is the publishing world and how you know, Facebook pages and these dodgy websites that just pop up overnight suddenly, you know, get huge traffic because they're trafficking in anti-Muslim and anti-immigrant tropes. And I think it speaks to a kind of fear that many people in European countries have about uh, 
the, they're changing countries, let's say. These are, you know, politics uh, in Europe it has been very deeply impacted by the migration, uh, what some people call the migration crisis of the last couple of years. And I think if, if you just said, I'm against immigrants, we mostly would consider that to be a bigoted or closed-minded statement. But if those immigrants can be shown to be subverting the law mm. or changing mm-hmm. your culture and your society in some way, uh, I think that gives the arguments a bit more credence. That's the best. That's my best guess currently, because otherwise it's just plain old um, bigotry. I'm reading this book right now about yellow journalism or like pamphleteer, sort of cheap journalism um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s in America. And there's a very interesting, similar parallel set of stories. Uh, Then it's about, you know, Italians and communists and Russians and these invading forces that are coming. And it does seem to really get currency because of the perfect storm, right? There's, There's one element of it that's kind of the fodder. It's the actual articles. But it almost requires like the politicians or other nodes in a society to be like, yup, that's a thing. You should care about it. And then it just hopscotches and amplifies. And one thing that keeps – really sticks out at me when I'm reading this is, you know, it felt like it had a lot of currency then. Here, the international dimension of it, right? So that was like a hysteria that people like had in New York and it it would be in these cities. But here, the fact that I can hopscotch from Sweden here and do so so quickly really seems to be sort of a different level and scale. So there's one specific like viral fake news kind of story that uh, comes up in your piece, which I think kind of like illustrate some of the dodginess and also weirdness of some of these stories, which is the Muslim biker gang um, in Germany. Is that correct, Ishmael? Yes, that's where it was supposedly based. Can you talk about what happened with that story, like, and how much of it was based in a in a real photo of like a, a, a guy in a biker jacket? So the story is that in July of 2017, uh, exactly a year ago, a Facebook group popped up that was calling itself Germany's Muslims. And th- this page said, you know, we are a, a biker group or a motorcycle club, and we want to protect Muslims from persecution and from violence. And the police, this was in the uh, western German city of Mönchengladbach, and the police there uh, just issued a warning saying, remember, like, no vigilante justice, everyone keep your heads. <laughs> and there was a spate of news articles in Germany at the time saying, this mysterious group has popped up, they claim to be protecting Muslims. There's not really much else known about them. One of the members may be on the police's uh, radar as a possible threat. It it was one of those things that just there there wasn't a whole lot of information about it. A few news articles come out and everybody kind of moves on. And in fact, the Facebook page for Germany's Muslims disappeared uh, just a couple of months after it popped up. And the founder of the group, this man uh, who was photographed wearing a sort of a biker jacket, Uh, He also, as far as I can tell, has disappeared from the internet. So this really was, basically, it came down to a Facebook page with very few followers just making some grand claims. What then happened is that this this story jumped the language and geographic borders into English. Hmm. The the Gatestone Institute, which some listeners might have heard of, is a New York-based think tank. They're a very hawkish, uh, pro-Israel think tank. John Bolton, who's currently uh, President Trump's national security advisor, who was previously the head of this organization. And 
if you read their website, a lot of what they traffic in is what we've just been talking about. You know, how Europe is in chaos and, and these waves of uh, newcomers are changing the culture. And another service that they provide, and I'm using service, I guess, <laughs> you know, advisedly here, is that they translate local European news stories into English. Uh, and then it, it spreads further within the English-speaking internet that we all sort of inhabit. And after the Gatestone Institute repackaged the story and added a whole bunch of warnings about, you know, vigilante Muslims running amok in the streets and imposing Sharia law on people, it got picked up by the wider English-speaking conservative media. And it just sort of kept going. And just as recently as two or three weeks ago, people were still writing about this and it was still being shared widely on Facebook. And as far as I can tell, this biker gang just really, really didn't exist. Right. To be honest, I mean, if there was a Muslim biker gang... <laughs> you would wear their I, I jacket? I interview them, probably. <laughs> Sounds like exactly the kind of thing that I would interview. You'd put their patch on your cool jacket. Yeah, exactly. So, Nabiha, part of why I wanted to have you here is to talk about how we deal with this line between fake news and free speech. It increasingly feels like with so much misinformation, the lines are blurred. So, for you, where is the First Amendment at right now? In the United States, which is a very particular environment, uh, the First Amendment is a messy bitch. It creates this wide space. I, she loves drama. She <laughs> She's loves... She's a messy bitch who loves Exactly. Drama. She loves <laughs> drama. There's this... Um, there's this tradition of like the government stay out of this. Don't tell us what's true and what's not true. We will decide for ourselves. So it's very like, you know, sort of rooted in revolutionary thinking. It's very idealistic and in fact has not always been the case. But it is a story that people tell themselves, right? There's nothing you can do about this. There's a couple of except notable exceptions to free speech, right? Like libel is a thing. Right. So if you say something that harms someone's reputation – well, then you can there's, – there's laws around that, right? You can get in trouble for that. If you say something that's fraudulent, you're like, hey, drink this. It'll cure your cancer. Right now, that is illegal. Um, and so there's this idea that if you say something, it's false and it harms somebody. Mm. And you need that last piece in the United States. Then you can have a private right of action. You can sue that person. What makes this type of uh, sort of fake news so difficult in the U.S. is if it's about an imaginary biker gang, like how does a doctrine like defamation – like who's going to sue mm. over that, over right. the imaginary biker gang, right? right? And groups in the United States don't have the ability to sue. So there is this idea of a group libel, like you harmed my group. You said this about all of us. So I can sue on behalf of it. That's not really a thing in the U.S. So there, it, it doesn't fit our sort of litigation scheme, and we don't want the government to weigh in. Now, what's really interesting about this hmm. this moment that we're in, unlike, say, the early 1900s, is that a lot of this speech uh, is happening on these platforms that aren't really bound by the same First Amendment rules necessarily, right? They're, they're not the government. So if they're like, excuse me, you can't say this about – a Muslim biker gang or whatever, you can't say these terrible things, they can enforce that. Now, there's this funny, you know, you'll see tech companies are like, no, we support the First Amendment. And they're kind of, they have an interpretation that's flawed. Uh, and, and really that idealistic version I mentioned before, they're not taking all these nuances into account. Can you please name names? 
Yeah, like you have you have like Facebook and yeah, Twitter yeah. and Reddit yeah. who are like, we can't do anything, except you do all the time. So they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth on this issue. But, you know, they're not confined in the same way that the government might be if they created a rule right. around uh, fake news and, and fake speech. So they actually have a lot more room. But what that means is sometimes they'll t- take something down, like the Declaration of Independence, right? And right. so it's it's giving now the platforms quite a lot of power, which I would argue they exercise already. But if anyone can do anything to support our friend, the truth, it might be them, but it might not be in a way that we like. Right. Now, in other countries... Because it's not a bad thing necessarily for them to get a lot of an audience clicking on things and sharing things that exactly. might not otherwise like what's being shared on the platform. You know, if you prioritize the not sensationalized stuff, you might see a drop in traffic. Exactly. You might see a bump. Like that's what you were saying, Ishmael, right? Like certain websites actually grew quite a bit from sharing these kind of stories. Absolutely. And I think there's different kinds of publishers. Some publishers publish anti-Muslim stories because that is, you know, their ideological uh, bent. Yeah. Uh, Some others simply do it because there's money in it. Yeah, it's their business model, right? Hate sells. Um, And so it's this really tricky space of like who's going to step up and do something. And in the U.S., it's not going to be the government right now in in the sense that the government has traditionally been more predictable than it is these days. Um, And and it, it may or may not be the platforms. They certainly don't look like they have a clear path forward to do it. In other countries, there is a lot more willingness to say that is hate speech. You can't say that. That is group libel. You can't say that. That is not allowed. That's fake. That's this. And that has its own problems, too. It's not perfect anywhere. And so it's not clear that anyone has a perfect path to what the truth is, but ours is certainly not working. And what's so great about Ishmael's story, it's a really specific example of how it's not working in a context internationally that maybe is a dimension we haven't even thought of. Right. Um, did you sorry? Did you just mention you mentioned hate speech as well? Yep. So I mean, part of what's happening is they're also navigating around that because there's no incitement at, at all to violence, mm-hmm. even though it's bigoted. And you could you could probably draw the line towards like increased anti-Muslim se- sentiment and anti-immigrant sentiment and violence in, in cases, but none of the actual like texts are are, are incitement to violence. They're just it's just fear mongering, which I think is what's smart about the way a lot of these outlets are, are, are writing their stories. Yeah. And what the other thing that's really tricky is, you know, there's things that are outright false. And then there are things like if you only reported on – you had a news outlet and it was like, we are Blue Hair Crime Watch. We only publish stories about crimes committed by people with blue hair. Well, someone who subscribes to your feed is going to be like, you know, those blue hair fuckers, they do a lot of stuff. They're bad people. <laughs> and so that's not necessarily inherently untrue. It's a, It casts this misperception by providing incorrect context, right? And so we see that in the anti-immigration context where, you know, people are reporting on crimes committed by immigrants, crimes committed by different demographics. Um, and it's like, well, the story itself isn't false, but the way you cast it is. And how do you begin to even police right. that? Right. And does that open up everybody to like, well, this is your bias. That's that's a crime. This is your bias. That's a crime. Then everyone's criminalized. And so it's a really – it's a very thorny problem. Right. But it needs some answers. So the other thing that we, ha- we haven't really touched on, uh, Ishmael, is the way in which there's a pipeline – You've talked about sort of like a pipeline to America, but it's also getting to Donald Trump. Can you talk a little bit about that process? Of course. So one thing that I observed is that there's certain publishers, you know, as the aforementioned Gatestone Institute, and then there's also uh, Breitbart. uh, There's a, a blog called Voice of Europe, which translates 
local crime stories, essentially, and anti-immigration stories into 18 different languages. And they, you know, help it spread as far and wide as possible. All these um, websites are what I like to call, you know, translators, basically. They take, um, like Nabia was saying, you know, often these stories are true or have a grain of truth. But if that's all you're reporting on, it starts to really become overwhelming. Mm -hmm. And they take local stories, tabloid stories from Sweden, Germany, Italy, Wherever somebody of a uh, an immigrant background or a Muslim background is doing something, you know, bad, and then they translate that and they blast it out to a much larger audience in English, and often you lose that local context. Mm. You totally, it becomes decontextualized from what that city might be going through or what that the community relations are or what the socioeconomic issues are, and it just becomes about Muslim criminality and immigrant criminality. And often in these stories, those two terms aren't interchangeable. When they talk about migrants, they're not talking about, you know, the the Polish guy who's, you know, visiting Italy for a summer. They're talking about people from the Middle East and North Africa. And the pipeline, the way it reaches the U.S. is through this uh, media ecosystem that then filters all the way up to the president. We've seen, you know, famously last year during a rally, uh, President Trump talked about last night in Sweden and what had happened the previous night in Sweden. You look at what's happening last night in Sweden. Sweden. Who would believe this? Sweden. They took in large numbers. They're having problems like they never thought possible. And, of course, everybody in Sweden scratched their heads and, th and said, well, nothing happened here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what he was talking about was a Fox News segment that he had seen that was sort of what we're talking about, this real fear-mongering uh, segment about, you know, the, what this influx of newcomers has done to the country and crime is rampant. And it's all based on these common tropes about, you know, a continent in chaos, uh, which is really not really true. And and one of the th things that you cited in your piece as well is just that this past month he had said that with the increase, increasing amount of migrants in Germany, that crime was way up, even though crime has been down. Um, right. So I want to uh, make a little bit of a, a, a pivot here to another story you did, which you first really put words to something about the way like the sort of Islamophobia industry um, has utilized Islamic terminology against Muslims and in a way that's like very unrecognizable to them, which is your story about how the alt-right is obsessed with taqiyya, which is a concept I was familiar with beforehand. Um, but the way that trolls were using it online was so foreign to me. Can you explain to me how that term became warped and a tool of rhetoric against um, Muslim immigrants? So taqiyya, uh, unlike yourself, I was actually not familiar with it until <laughs> I kept seeing it come up in an anti-Muslim context. It is a pretty obscure Islamic concept about self-preservation. If you are being persecuted, if you are in danger and you have to lie about your faith, then that is permitted in Islam. I feel like I have heard this a lot come up in conversations between Sunni and Shia in terms of like when taqiyya is a legitimate thing and like what kind of people you could hide your religious identity from. So that's a that's a very good example because uh, often, you know, Shia communities are minorities in yes. a larger uh, you know Muslim country. And uh, it, I think the concept has taken greater root in certain Shia communities because it's the same issue. It's about self-preservation. Right. So if you have to hide your beliefs to save your life, basically, that is permitted and it, it is accepted. Right. 
one, one person, a, a professor of uh, Islamic law, whom I interviewed for that story, uh, put it very succinctly. He said, the way the the term is now used by anti-Muslim bigots, uh, where they claim taqiyya actually allows you to lie, not just for self-preservation, but as a, as a form of a conquest. And, you know, you can lie to basically any non-believer to further a goal of, you know, Islamic supremacy. He said... What people have done is they've ch- changed the term from a shield to a sword. Mm. They've turned it from a defensive mm-hmm. thing to a, something that you're using to attack others. And um, if you follow uh, or if you read anti-Muslim uh, writers, activists, websites, you'll see this term thrown about very liberally. Basically, no Muslim can be trusted because they're always lying. And if they say that they're not lying or that they don't believe in Takiya or that they've never even heard of this term – that, of course, is itself a form of taqiyya. So you can't, you really can't win. It's another example of ripping something out of context mm-hmm. and then distorting it beyond any recognition, right? It's it's symptomatically very similar to the melting cars. There, yes, this is a, a car a car melted, but not for the reasons or the context or in right, any way right. that you're ascribing to it. And so it's, it was sort of bizarrely a very similar playbook here. It's like, I'm going to give you this tidbit. And the heart of this on some some way is true, but I'm going to show you the funhouse version, funhouse mirror version of it, and it's going to it be fine. And then what I – with Takiya in particular, it's like then if you Google it, if you're like, I don't know if this is real. Let me Google it and try to figure it out. You see, you see more and more reinforcement of that right. through these sort of like contextless sites. Like the top, the top site. A lot of time when you Google a lot of Islamic concepts is answeringislam.com. Exactly. Which you, if you didn't know anything about answeringislam.com, you might think this is a reputable source talking about Islam instead of like mostly anti-Muslim uh, website. Right. And so it's like, where do you go for context? Even if you are a, a, a well-intended person who's like, I don't know if this is correct. I'm going to go look for some some context. Even the quest for that is so distorted too that the entire it's like the entire ecosystem is poisoned. And part of why that the Kia thing is also so interesting is because it also shows you in which it's sort of like like there's a spraying of misinformation mm-hmm. and there's and if you're like I mean my experience of being a Muslim on the internet as a teenager like growing up arguing with trolls is they would ask you okay answer for this concept in Islam like let's say taqiyya but let's also say like whatever thing the hijab or whatever thing that they that they and then the onus is on you to correct their slightly distorted version mm-hmm. or slightly more extreme version that doesn't reflect anything that I've experienced. Yeah, that you know that is familiar, that you recognize. And then there's this playbook of just moving. All right, you you barely answered this one. I'm going to go on to this next distorted concept. Yeah. And, like, they have, like, a, a litany of different things that they can It's like a field up. of straw men, and then you're just chasing all of them, and then you never get to affirmatively say your own version of the truth. Right. Have you seen any other examples of that kind of stuff in your in your debunking quests, Ishmael? Well, I just want to pick up on on what you guys mentioned, that often the quest for better information leads you further down these rabbit holes where mm-hmm. you're just being fed more and more misinformation. Right. Uh, and another website that pops up often when you uh, Google anything about Islam is called The Religion of Peace. Oh, and it's yeah. And you know, it's a very anti-Muslim website. Um, and one of the problems that I've just come across is that the the overwhelming amount of information online – uh, about Islamic concepts, about Muslims, about uh, Muslim-majority countries, is uh, comes from that negative side. And Google has actually had to alter their search results for some of these concepts, uh, concepts God. like Sharia and Jihad <laughs> and uh, Taqiyya, because 
I think they recognized that you simply you can't leave it neutral. You have to provide credible sources. You know, even just the Wikipedia entry being first is very helpful compared to the usual results you get. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that damage has been done, unfortunately. Like, the search engines have just, like, even for me, it's like, as somebody who studied, you know, done, done like a master's in Islamic studies, like, finding good sources on the internet is next to impossible for a lot of this stuff, besides primary sources. And unfortunately, the thing with Islam is, like, you need a lot of secondary sources in order to make any of your right. points, because a lot of what Islamic thought and theology has developed is not going to be found in the Quran or the Hadith. They're going to be found in a lot of sec- – it requires, like, a lot of expertise, and then there's people going around acting like experts on Islamic law and s- sort of speaking to the side of the truth where it sounds like it could be right, but you have no way of knowing unless you really talk to somebody who is an expert in Islamic law. Right. I mean, one one thing that seems so hard to me about all of this, I mean, picking up on what Ishmael has just said about Google going back in and trying to mix up the sources of authority is how do you create an ecosystem where the people who actually know with authority do rise to the top, but there's still room for whether it's dissenting opinions or discussion or debate to also be part of it, which is part of the beauty of at least the possibility of the internet, right? So you don't only say, well, like, that's what Islam QA said. I guess that's what we got to do. Like, you know, uh, how do you balance both of those things? Because on one hand, yeah, you know, you could have an internet that's just like, well, this this is what Al-Azhar has said about this, and, like, this is the only way forward, and that seems overly limiting, too. And and which is, it's an issue both with news, I mean, the tension between authoritative sources and sort of bottom-up stuff that really, I mean, we're experiencing quite personally in this realm. Are there any other recourses here that we haven't talked about besides, like, the search engine giants and... uh, Suing everybody for libel. Suing everybody for libel, (laughs) though neither of those seem like very good solutions. (laughs) I mean, as a libel lawyer, I could be in business forever. Um, Maybe let me ask you also, Ishmael, like, the, the difficult question is, like, how many people are reacting to your stories in a way that like make is making them better media consumers. Do you have faith that like this kind of reporting is going to become like the answer to this problem or at least part of the solution? Mm-hmm. Well, I I'm hopeful that by simply providing another source on some of these uh, disputes, some of, some of these myths and hoaxes, uh, that somebody who's truly willing to learn or look for the answers will will find them. Uh, I think there's a lot of people who have just decided that they don't like Muslims <laughs> or that they don't trust uh, the religion, and you're not necessarily going to reach those people. Right. I'm hoping uh, that some of the debunking work that I do, specifically on, on Muslim issues, reaches that broad middle who have just been fed a fairly steady diet of anti-Muslim information for, let's say, 20 years now almost. If they want to find some alternative perspectives, I'm making that a little bit easier by giving them sort of a Snopes.com of uh, anti-Muslim myths and stuff. I, I'm hopeful that eventually we can bust some of these myths, but it's uh, it's tough going some days. Does Snopes.com do any of this work for the anti-Muslim stuff? Like, I'm genuinely curious. So this is actually great because I recently discovered a tag on the Snopes.com website um, that is just called Muslims Offended. <laughs> because a very common uh, hoax or, or lie about uh, Muslims is that they're just too offended. You know, they're offended by pork in a school cafeteria menu. They're offended by dogs. They're offended by this. So I, I, th- I found it very hilarious that Snopes has a tag that's just devoted to 
debunking how offended various Muslim communities are. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Muslim rage, right? Remember that time cover oh, yeah. or Newsweek cover or whatever, oh, whatever it was? Like that's that's Muslim rage right there. Nabiha, do you have any also final thoughts on like as what's 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 going on with free speech, man? Are we do we just gotta accept this garbage pile that we're in of of falseness? No. I mean I think Especially in reading the history of the First Amendment and free speech, you see that it's a deeply responsive to politics. It's mm-hmm. deeply political. It's one of the most political of the amendments and it sort of changes with the wind. And so, yes, it creates a large space for this kind of nonsense to happen. But then it's also the same space that people like Ishmael and the debunking team get to operate in and be like, this is not truth. I mean, truth is a contested thing, but we have like, good people on our side to help make that clear. And And I think we just kind of need more people in our ranks doing this stuff. We need more Ishmaels. We need a newsroom full of him. Um, and, and in terms of the law, the law is going to be, for now, I think a cold comfort. The tech companies will be a cold comfort, but at least there's room for us to do something. Yeah. And part of what's happening here is the people that are most adept at using the Internet to change people's minds are the people who are native to it, the trolls and the, um, you know, like sort of people who are chased off of, 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 of like – mainstream rhetoric, um, mm-hmm. you know, and as a result, our institutions also need to adapt to the times and learning how to respond to it. And it might take some time, but like, I'm very, very glad we have a debunking team here. And thank you, Ishmael, for your work. I learn a lot reading your stuff. Um, and where can people find that information if they want to uh, be better news consumers? Where can people f- follow your work, Ishmael? Uh, well, I think if you want to be a better news consumer, just a healthy dose of skepticism about anything you see <laughs> is first and foremost. Um, but if they are more interested in our work, uh, they can find us at BuzzFeed.com. We do have a tag, I think, for debunking. But, you know, usually if you search our website for for specific things you're interested in, chances are we've seen that hoax or that fake viral image and we're working on it. Great. And Nabiha, where can people follow you and your work? They can find me on Twitter, where I'll just be retweeting things that you say, <laughs> at Nabiha Sayed. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure doing Takia with all of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, got him with the last-minute joke. <laughs> you had your reporter hat on the whole time. This episode is produced by Megan Dietrich, Agarna Shishagre, Julia Ferlin, and me. Additional production support from the Pod Squad. Our music is by the Caminas. You can find them at caminas.bandcamp.com. You can find the show on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram, which is like the best follow ever. You should definitely follow our Instagram account, which is at BuzzFeed See Something and run by Ikran in the UK. Um, you can find me on Twitter at RadBrownDads and my writing at BuzzFeed.com, the website. Email us with your questions, your concerns, comments at say something at BuzzFeed.com. And please leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps people find us. And also, it makes me smile when you say nice things. Um, I'm Emma Dalyakper. Thanks for listening. Bye.